Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. I'm Nikki Holloway. Good to see you. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Yep. That hang on. Time. I'm going to bring you up in a second. Hang on. So each and every week, as you know, I search the globe, especially to find people that don't speak often and we don't hear about, but we revere them as very important sentiments to what we all do. I'm going to bring them up right now. This is, oh, this is Holloway, everybody. Nikki, thank you for coming on. We had to search high and low to find Nikki Holloway. But thankfully, thank God, he is doing very well. He is safe and sound, tucked in the United Kingdom. And in the rain. Huge. I must, I must just warn, warn the viewers. And I do come with a bit of a, a, a sort of warning, an over-18 sticker, because I do, oh, I do yeah, tend yeah. to swear a lot. And I'm sorry, I don't realise I'm doing it, you know, but it just comes out. So if you're easily offended with swear words, then look right here. So anyway, Nikki has, you know, you want to talk about a discography of promotion, nightclubs, DJ himself, and help launch careers? This is your man, okay? I'm going to stop there and I'm going to make it real simple. Nikki, how are you doing? First of all, yeah, all right. Now so that uh, recent, I don't know, know if people know, but uh, I had prostate cancer a few years ago, and uh, I had the treatment, and it seems ever since I went to Prague and had the proton beam thing, it seems to be really well. It's it's right down where it should be, so it's. Uh, okay. I, think, I think it's worked, but okay. you don't ever want to. You don't ever want to get too sort of a. Uh, it's always in the back of your head and worry, but I feel fine at the moment. And if he's, you know, good on that end. Good, good. Mm-hmm. And as well, how's life been treating you with this whole COVID thing? Before we get uh, to well, so, it's, it's, so I had a kind of a the, sort of two years before this the, the uh, lockdown. You know, in one year, my mum had a stroke. I had cancer. My best friend died, and my dad, who I only just really got to know after thirty years. Died all in one year, and it was like you know, I actually feel bulletproof now. It's almost like you could like I wonder when it bankrupt. So it was a bit like in one year, everything everything happened, and it felt like this year was going to be my year, you know, because I got I had lots of nice bookings in again. I was ready to start going out again, ready to see people again, all excited, you know, a load of things booked up in the for and loads of stuff going on, and then this happened. I couldn't believe it. I was like, you know. This was supposed to be my. I've been I've been in lockdown for about three years, so it hasn't actually seemed so different to me because I'm looking after the ninety year old mum who's in the room next door. I kind of don't get a chance to go out unless I get a ba- you know a, ba- a babysitter basically or someone to look after her, you know. And uh, so I really was was I was planning to have a really good old party this year, and it's just you know, but it'll come back. So you went from 100 to zero with Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like, especially after having sort of two or three years of not going out anyway, I was ready to. I was really looking forward to it. You know, it's uh, – no no one could have seen that, that coming. I mean, I don't think anyone in the world could have – I did. Yeah. Well, that was my president, the old president that was in, in the office, kept yelling and saying it was a hoax. I says, Christ, this is going to go really bad in another minute. Yeah, I thought that as well. I just – didn't think 
it was ever going to get to pandemic, I knew it was epidemic status. We were talking about it in 2019, December. I was in Jamaica. I was talking yeah. to Europeans that brought me over, the Italians. And I did a big New Year's Eve party. And they were asking me, had you heard about what was going on in Italy? And I said, yeah. They said, this thing is floating around and people are passing away. And it's like, we knew about it. And if yeah. we knew about as soon as, it. As soon as we saw the chart, you know, what was going on in Wuhan, I knew it was going to end up everywhere, you know. It was inevitable. Yeah. It's just, uh, but I mean, uh, things are looking better in England now than they were a few months ago. You know, most people are getting vaccinated. The dates are starting to be put back in a diary. You know, pubs are open again. People are wondering, you know, out and about a bit more. Hopefully, touch wood. You know, we, we're in a much better position than probably the rest of Europe is at the moment. Well, Karen, wherever she is right now, Miss Karen Scarborough, who handles yeah. this wonderful thing. What thing gets more inquiries? Everyone asking, when's Lenny coming to the UK? Let me clarify yeah. it real fast. When the borders open, because I can yeah. fly into London's Heathrow Airport. You'd have to stay in a hotel for 10 days or something. Right, I'll be doing that full U-turn back out to go back on the plane coming home. Yeah, it'll keep. It'll keep. Yeah, I know. Yes, these days for me, years seem to just fly by nowadays. I can't believe that was a whole year. It just went like that. And, you know, the only exciting thing happened to me last year was getting one of these chairs. That was the highlight of my year. I've always wanted one of these. You've got one now. And, uh, and uh, you know, they're expensive, aren't they? They're, they're big bucks. And a friend of mine, I put a thing on Facebook, and a good friend of mine, Ian Ellis, said, I've got a spare one, you know. So I was like, right, because I'm using it eight hours a day to sit down doing the music or whatever. And it's like, I, I just, every time I went in the studio, everyone always had these chairs, didn't they? You know, they were like the, the sound that everyone had. But yeah, I've always wanted one. And then I looked at the price of it, and I thought, £1,000 for a chair? Are you kidding me? You know? Well, there's a way to there's a way around that. I talk. I, I actually helped somebody else in the UK was to go to the secondhand office. Yeah, yeah, but even they, even they're five, six hundred pounds secondhand. But it's yeah. better than a thousand. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. But to be honest with you, I can see feel the difference though. You know, my ass is like happy, <laughs> whereas it was aching from you the other chairs. Oh, eight hundred. My ass is on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you know what I mean. I was. It was like I was really noticing it with. After six hours in these other cheap chairs, and like you know, you may not feel the difference. But anyway, that, that's it. That was the highlight of my year getting a chair. Nikki's highlight. Nikki, let's get right to the first question because you got a lot to tell us, brother. And I know, you know, how does <laughs> here we go? How does music find a young Nikki? Well, well, my mum told me this story as well, and, and I kind of checked it out. And it's like, whenever mum was pregnant with me, and when I when I was born. She was living, she lived and lived with my dad on a houseboat on a place called Eel Pie Island, which had a venue on it right next to where the boat was. And the Rolling Stones played there, the David Bowie, Pink Floyd, they were all playing there in, around the time I was, I was born. And she was stuck on the boat while my dad was actually in the venues playing the music, but she could hear the music on the boat. So, if, you know, there's a good chance that I would have been, that, as I was being conceived and born, listening to one of those big, big rock bands that played there. Yeah, it's not there now, but it's most people in the music business that know the history over here. It was, it was a big famous venue, a hotel venue on Neil Pie Island. It's really not in the middle of the Thames. You know, then, then uh, 
I think I started getting into music when I was at school, early, early at school. When you know, we used to the little record shops, and they, when the new charts come out, you go and get the list of all the singles that were, and go down the list. And half the time, they didn't have the ones you wanted. And you had to go to the next one you liked. And they had those little booths that you could go in to listen to them. There was all seven inch singles. I've still got a lot of them. But um, to get the money for them, we used to do things like, uh, like, Penny for the guy, or going helping out, and uh, there was one called Bobber Job, which was like the Cub Scouts knocking on people's doors, like <laughs> boys in short trousers knocking on strangers' doors. I don't think that's going to work now somehow. But uh, he used to go knocking on straight anyone's door, and they put a sticker in the window if they did it, just to get money. And uh, Penny for the guy was the other one where, where you'd dress up something, stuff it with some old clothes and some hay, and make it look like a, a dummy of, of a guy forks. And then stand outside the market and get money for there. And I used to say, as soon as I got my money, I would be straight down the record shop buying singles, you know. And we were living in a house with a, a, a stepbrother and sister as well, and where I'm now, Barnet. And it was quite. A, it was all, every every room in the house had a different set of music playing. Like the mum and dad were into country and western, like Jim Reeves and all that. So that was going on in one room. The other room had. Motown and James Brown going on. And then the brother had like all reggae and scar and all that, you know, stuff for Trojan stuff going on. And then we had our sort of kids' pop music, Slade and all that. So there's like five rooms of music going on, all totally different. So I kind of, kind of, uh, I think that's where I got a bit of a, like, a wide me, knowledge of it, you know? Sounds like a smorgasbord of different sounds going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. But I still remember the sort of tra- tracks to this day, some of them, you know, it's like, you know, there was a, uh, they stick with you. Moving on from there. So, wow. So the, That's like working in City Sounds as well for a little while. Ah, there we go. You know? So, from, wait, from Cub Scouts to City Sounds. Yeah, well, no, like, well, there was the school in between that bit, which I didn't really like. I was fishing mad. I used to go fishing every day instead of bunking off school. But I don't remember, like, um, getting, like, you know, I know Carl the other week was talking about those catalogs. Your mum's your always had the catalogs to buy, buy things out of. And I knew exactly the thing he was he was talking about, because he used to look at it in the back of it and think, one day I'm going to get one of them. And we had, um, I would bunk, bunk off school, my mum would go to work, I, I would creep back in, and I'd get her, her hi-fi, she had like, you know, a music centre thing, you know, with like cassette in it, and so I'd get hers and mine put next to each other, and then stick a mic on a, on a, on a stand, like a, on a broomstick handle or something, and then record it onto this little... Real to real, I had and practiced with DJ. It was mad. I didn't have no money for no equipment and stuff. And then that, that, was, that was probably about 15, 16. And then I sort of got old enough to go out to clubs, you know. And uh, it was, it was, uh, I started going to a place called the Royalty. And I used to stand up there. It was in, it was in Southgate. And everyone, every, I saw everybody there Fadden Whitehead, Nita Ward, Sugar Hill Gang. Marvin Gaye, they all they all played at this club. It was every Friday and Saturday night. Where exactly was this club? Exactly. The Royalty, it's called. Where? Where was it in, in Southgate? The... Southgate. Okay. It was the, the main DJs was like, was a guy called Froggy. You know, oh, I, who, I, I, yeah, he Froggy had been over to New York and listened to Paradise Garage and took all that in. And he was the first one to sort of really start doing the beat beat mixing stuff over here. And I just remember I'd be up there every week, you know, and I probably weren't old enough to be in there. And I stood on the end of the deck. I was the original like train spot. I stood on the end of the deck just watching him nearly all night, you know, and what he was doing, you know. So uh, they set up a, 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 a good uh, 
Facebook page for that actually, and it's got all the all the tunes. It was big there, yeah. It's Royalty Southgate. So it, it's a good page. It's, you, you just don't forget the music, and it's it's. I think most people in house that are a bit older did come from a a soul and funk and jazz background, a disco background. And, you know, they came from you know primarily a black music background. You know, uh, I think I think it is the, definitely the, where it was at before. You know. Disco is house, isn't it? Pretty much, as Frankie Knuckles yeah. said, disco yeah. house is disco's revenge. Yeah. He always said that, and he was right. It just never, for me, it never felt like it ended. No. So you go from there, of course, and you find your way, and everybody's, you know. Um, yeah, as it's, uh, there. I, I, I started doing this audition for uh, some DJ agency that used to sort of. They, they wanted to see what you was like on the mic, so you just had to play about. They wanted to hear your links, basically, because you had to use a mic, you know, introducing the records and all that. And I got knocked back from it the first two times, and then the third time I went for the audition, I got, I got offered a couple of gigs. You know, they weren't they weren't like they were sort of pub disco gigs around the old Kent Road area. You know, I think it used to get about like eight pound or fifteen pound a night, but at the time it was all right. You know, that was that wasn't so it wasn't so bad. It, you know, it wasn't. Terrible, but uh, I think you know that few, you know, few years that I was doing all those pub discos. You kind of learn a lot. You learn how to spot the fights before they start. <laughs> you learn how to see who's going to be trouble and who isn't in the club. And you know, it's uh, and you know, reading a room as well because you'd be playing the whole night as well. That's the main thing. You know, that's my favourite thing. I like doing the whole night from start to finish if I can. But these days you don't really get that chance to do that because thirty minutes. Forget about doing. Yeah, no. I mean, it's so ridiculous, and it's just a it's just a pissing contest, isn't it? Everybody's just trying to go one higher than the one before them. There's no highs without the lows, and there's no lows without the highs. And you know, when you when you play the whole night, you can kind of you're warming up for yourself, and you know where it's going, and you know you're going to take them that way, and you know you're going to have a break of it, and you know you're going to it's like ebbs and flows and light and shade. Whereas when it's just like the same thing all night and everybody's just trying to make a show for the one hour that they're on, it's all a bit, bit X factor, really. Right. No, you got that right because um, that was how a lot of us learned. You yeah. all, you closed. And no, beyond- I, still, I still prefer to do that. When, that's why when I eventually got the clubs open, I used to love doing Fridays and Saturday nights and I would do all night sometimes, you know, or have one other person as well, you know, because having a good, having a good warm up DJ is. It's really important because, you know, the, so you have these people warm up and they're trying to play a main time slot in a warm up. And it's like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? You want someone that's going to do anything but what you're going to do later. No, but the thing is, they want to be stars. That's the thing. Yeah. They're trying to be yeah. stars. They don't realize they're shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. No, the way you, the, you know, the way you would be to be a good warm up DJ for somebody and not play the things that, you know, the big hitters and that. Right. You're yeah. playing something that maybe they don't know, or you know, a little bit down tempo, or you know, a little more relaxed. Get you know, that level because you wouldn't play a twelve midnight record at nine thirty. No, so do that. I hate it sometimes. Like going to clubs, I mean, they've got they, you know, they're fresh in the system where there's no one in there, so there's nowhere to take it afterwards. You know what I mean? It's like maxed out in the first hour. You know, but that's just that's just like. You know. When you work with proper people, they know that. Right. I, mean, I, I normally spend the first 10 minutes of, of, of a set kind of – I normally had a word with the sound guy first and said, look, 
I'm going to turn it down, right? You know, because they've got it all maxed out to save the equipment anyway. You know, it's all limited and compressed. You know, and it's like I'm saying, look, you know, I, I will, I will back it off in the first record. I'll get it down to so it's not in the red. You know, I'm not sending you a crap single. And and they're normally quite pleased that you know you've even engaged to talk to them about things like that. And I say, and I give them a, a little, um, one of those little laser pen things because they're normally off to the side. And I said, look, if it, if I'm if I'm pushing it, flash that at, at the mixer, and I'll know that you, look, rather than you turn it down, you keep turning it down, and make it turn it up. I'll take it back again on here. Do you know what I mean? And they normally work, work with you know they they they've got it all maxed out so that you can't blow stuff up, you know. And, yes. uh, but normally the earlier DJs have have, have, have peaked and, and thrashed the arse out of it before it's even got to your set, haven't they? Well, you understand that. Yeah, that's you know, a bit of an excuse. The amount of times I've got to venues over the years, you know, DJ, and I've looked at it and I've I've realised that, you know, even just like the, the leads are in around the wrong way, you know, so you're getting the face cancellations and all that sort of stuff, you know what I mean? And you walk out into the middle of the dance floor and it's quieter than it is around the edges, you know, things like that where it's, where it's cancelling each other out and that. You know, I walk in a place and I say, that shouldn't be there, that shouldn't be like that. You know, sometimes they haven't even got it. This is not wired up properly. If there's no one sound man there, it's just the club gear. I guarantee you some barmaid or or, 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 or the cleaners pulled something out and left something out and done something wrong. So, yeah, you know. No, I hear you. So, on your road up to clubbing sensation. Well, yeah, after the sort of royalty, yeah, I was sort of uh, going all the soul and funk things. And I kind of... Um, Wanted to do me. I wanted to get in with the big DJs at the time, which was like the, the Chris Hills and the people who did the Case the Weekends and all that. So I started doing this thing on a Monday night in a pub in Bermondsey called the Swan and Sugarloaf, and people were coming from all over on a Monday night. They were coming from miles on on a, on a Monday Monday night, and we it, it turned out to go for a good few years. And I, after that, there was another place down the road that had a late license and a dance floor and all that, and that was called the Royal Oak. In Tooley Street, it's not there now, it's been knocked down. But uh, I, they, they used to be really busy and then they weren't. And then I started to hire the night, pay them a fee. And and, and, then, and then it was my first ever promotion thing, really, you know. And it was uh, it, that, that built up, that went on for a good few years. I mean, I had Pete Tong as my resident downstairs and Giles Peterson upstairs. So you, you know, had, that, is that your first club you promoted? The first club, first one I promoted, yeah, it was a thing called the Special Branch. And we used to do, it, it kind of grew out of the, the Royal Oak and Tooley Street, which was like sort of 300 people every Friday night. And it was around about the same time as, as when, when Carl was talking the other day about Ziggy's in, in, in Paul Oakford's club in, in Streatham. We were like six or seven miles away down the road from them on the same night. We, same they were, we were friendly competition with each other on those nights because... And the, the, Hang on, for some of the younger audience, what year would that be? That you started that? Oh, it would have been 85, 85, 86. That club? Yeah. Yeah, it would have been made about that time. You know, uh, no, Pete, had, Pete hadn't, wasn't on Radio 1 at that time. You know, he was, he was still, still, you know, just starting out in the game. He was working at Blues and Soul magazine at the time. Okay. And I remember, you know, it's like when I look back, I found some old stuff, old uh, receipts and things of, of what, what it was. It's, it's quite funny to think that. He used to pay them 50, 60 pounds. <laughs> you know I mean? It wouldn't be like that now. But um, that was good. They were good times. And we built up a, a following. 
and started doing bigger things. We started doing these things in London Zoo called Do It The Zoo. And uh, it was actually in the zoo. So the first one we've done, when you bought a ticket, you had a ticket to go around the zoo first and then the gig party was on after us. But they, they built up into, you know, 3,000 3, 3, people. And we did that for a good few years. You know, they, they were really good big gigs at the time. We started doing things in, in all strange places like Tisler's Caves and Thorpe Park and we've done one in the Natural History Museum. Ran, ran, you know, the Natural History Museum, you said that big... Uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex thing in, in the yeah. middle, Dippy Doris, whatever it's called. Well, how about this for like, coincidence? We, we had the, they, I can't believe we pulled that one off because nowadays, if we went to hire it, there'd be all public liability insurance and all these things for like, safety things, wouldn't there? You know, all, all these th things that you have to do just to do a party in one of these places now that you have to have, you know, uh, risk assessments and all this sort of stuff. But we, we just hired it because they start, they, and, and, and to think that we were climbing in to that 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 um, the big dinosaur thing and putting strobe lights in it and things like that and if you know people were joining but the what the the coincidence thing was at that time that we did the party the was not was record was like in number number four in the charts in England you know they walk the dinosaur open the door get on the floor so it was <laughs> imagine playing that there and everyone's round round there so it was, it was, it was we had we uh they they said we could have six hundred people in there, and we sold twelve hundred tickets because uh, it was bigger. Than they said, and what we did was we 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 numbered them upside down. So look, there was no ticket of more than number six hundred on it. But there was only like some little guy on the door that was like this. We had our own security, and the guy's going, "I was looking a bit busy in there." And I said, "No," I said, and he had looked through the tickets and he couldn't find. Anyone with more than one number under six hundred on it. Wait, so six hundred upside down is double oh nine. No, yeah, no, we we did it there, and then we did another one upside down. The one to six hundred again, but we stamped them that way instead, so we knew how many were. And it, I mean, it wasn't silly packed or anything, but they normally have it as a, a conferency place, you know. And we we, uh, we we got away with that one. I don't know how we got away with that. I don't even know how you got the Natural History Museum. That's like crazy. Yeah. Well, they, they do rent them out now for corporate parties. Yeah. yeah. And we did one at Lord's Cricket. No. The stuff in Natural History Museum is worth a fortune, have it? We had 1,200 feet without it. Agreed to doing this function. I can't believe you even got it. Yeah. We used to call them doos. So it was like, a, <clears throat> that was the dinosaur do. And then we had the, the googly do, which was at Lord's Cricket Ground. Google we had the caveman boogie thing, which was in uh, it was in Chislers Caves in a cave, miles away. And then we had um, do it the dome. I mean, it was a, do it the do was the, the kind of brand, the, the brand. And it, there wasn't really such a thing as brand in those days. Like now, you know, no one thought of it as brand. We we would sort of never really had a marketing plan or or a, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Like that. We were just yeah. doing it for fun. And if we happened to get a bit of money on top. That was it. I mean, it was like, on the rule of thumb, it would be like you needed to sell two, nearly all the things we did, you needed to sell about two thirds of tickets to break even. You know, to break even. And if sometimes you made money, sometimes you just broke even. You know, and then, but one one time, um, we were doing these things at London Zoo. And there'd been a, a couple of times before, there'd been these group of gang, gang of, you know, bad boys climbing in and getting in. And, 
steaming, you know, running, snatching chains and all that. And people were too scared to do anything. The la- on the last time, they come, they come down right near the end of the night just to do that. And they'd sort of walk through the club just grabbing stuff, you know. And um, this is, would have been 86, 87. And what we did, we said, no, we're not having that anymore. So we got all the security together. We, we bundled them, got them in a room, and we called the police. And because we did that, they, they next time we went for the licence of it, we got refused the licence. We've done, I think, about 16 or 17 of these parties once every couple of months. And because we did the right thing by getting them, having them nicked, it kind of cost us the gig. But we didn't get the licence a, a day before we, we'd had the thing sold out. So what are we going to do? We've got no venue. And that's when I rung up the Astoria, who had a band called Slave playing. You know Slave, Steve Arrington? Yeah. 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 Well, they, they were on, but they hadn't sold. The place sold 2,000, something like that. They'd only sold about three or 400 tickets. So I said, I've got a great idea. Why don't we tell everyone that the gig's still on the zoo, put coaches on and take them there and so pretend there's been a flood at the zoo. So, so we did that. We said that there was a flood and we couldn't use it. So everyone still turned up, but no, nobody nobody wanted their money back. They were quite happy to go somewhere else. So we coached them all down to the Astoria in, in, you know, in, in town. And because of that, that was what got me in the door to do the regular things at Sin and Trip because I'd done a few parties there before. I'd done you know, two or three things in the Astoria. The Astoria was going up to a different, another, another level, you know. Sure. But it was pure accident. It was purely like, you know, we said, what do we do here? Cancel it. Or should we try and move it into another venue? And they had the space, and they were happy to do it. So they got a free. And a lot of people knew who Slave were anyway, so they got a free concert. Um, but, you know, so it was a, it was win win all round really. So that's that's what got me through the door of that. And the timing was that was sort of just before the sort of house thing kind of you know started to to explode. You know. So what were you playing musically at that time? Well, we, we'd started playing house. It was, you know, because it was like we'd been to New York and we, you know, we, we were playing the early stuff, the, you know, the DJ International track stuff. And But it was kind of, we are also playing, you know, Beastie Boys and, and, and hip-hop stuff as well. So it was kind of hip-hop, rare groove, and a few house records, you know, things like we were playing Jack, Jack, Jack Your Body and all things like that, and Steve Arrington, uh, Steve, oh, this one. Who's the bloke, Steve Silk Early, you know, all those sort of things, all those early ones. We were playing them, but like it, it hadn't really it hadn't really took off. They didn't, you know, they were we got away with them, but they but we were all playing some we were probably playing slower stuff with it. a rare the, groove vibe, if you like. What you know? was the what was your safeties to get the crowd crazy at that time? Your safeties that you would have ran to and said, Well, we had the, the JVC force, Strong Island, that was always a big one, you know. And uh the incredible Mr. Freeze, back, back. Oh. I want to go back, you know, that sort of stuff. And Vince Montana, you know, but it was almost more up to 120 and not really past that at the time, you know. Gotcha. And the, you know what I mean? It was more 115, 118, that sort of stuff, BPM. So, so off camera, my man mentioned he had came over to a new music seminar. I'll let him tell that story too. Oh, yeah, that was it. It was, well, was just around the same time, time right? Another thing about in the early days, when I, when I, when I was first starting out, I actually met Paul Okafold when I was working as a Saturday boy in a clothes shop in Oxford Street. We both worked there. And he, he had all his, his hip-hop stuff because he'd been over New York for, and I had all the jazz folk stuff. So we used to argue about who, what, what, who put the cassette on and which one, you know, which one went on and all that. So I, I met Paul then. That, was, that would have been like 85. But, um, 
jumping around there. What was we? I forgot what we were talking about there. So you came over to New York. Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. Uh, let me know. Um, we went over there and uh, it was, I think it was 86 and it was at the Marriott Marquis Hotel. It was a new music seminar. Like they do with this in Miami thing now, the Miami dance thing they do. It used to be in New York and everybody, everybody in the industry would go to New York. And so I mean, it was like, oh, wow, this is, this is mad, crazy. And we was in this really, me and Paul were in this really, Shitty, crappy hotel, uh, um, you know, noisy, tiny little room, two little single beds in it. And the, the first night Paul got there, he, when he went, he was working for Champion Records at the time. The first night he got there, he got kind of signed to go and work for Profile in New York, and they they bumped him up and put him in a decent hotel. So I had the little one to myself, which was quite quite fun. Yeah, he kind of. That moved him up a step. He went from sort of a little little local label in, in, in England to Profile Records in New York, you know, from DMC and all that sort of stuff. But I just bought another record that was big for us. It was that King Keen and Jungle Fever. Good record. Yeah, that one, uh, they, they, from prof- that one. From prof- Profile was a good label, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. very good. Yeah. Yo, you had a record on Profile. You were, you were, you were large back then. Yeah, that's that. They were, weren't they? Yeah. So... You you came to your music seminar. Yeah, so uh, I managed to uh, go to get I got to the Paradise Garage a couple of times, but when the year that we went, it was all I'd never taken an, an, an E before, and I didn't understand why people were, were up all night in a place that had no alcohol. It, it all seemed a bit sense, strange right? to me. I didn't know what what it was about, but I do remember one record that was that uh, I came back. Memory was that. Master Sinjay, you know, when when you hold me, that was like before it that was a really an early one, you know. And uh I, I kind of I, I did get it. I, I, it was Ben Guffrey's birthday party, and so and everybody was always wanted to get up in the DJ box with, with Larry LeVan, didn't they? And he used, to, he used to keep it shut and all that. Yep. But, yep. Uh, but I met I met Timmy Registered there actually as well, up on the roof. They had a little roof open roof service up, didn't they? And uh, we went to Shakedown Studios with Wally Jump Jr. was doing that jump back record with Arthur Baker and that, you know, we had a wander around there. And that's when I went out to, to, to Long Island because some, someone went to stay with a friend out there for one night just to see something different. But that's also where I got the name of the Milk Bar from because I went to a place called the Milk Bar in New York, you know, and uh, there used to be a bar there called the Milk Bar and another one called Nell's that everyone went to. And... I went to area that used to change the deck all the time. Remember that? Yeah. And yeah, I went to the Saint as well. Remember yep. the Saint? Uh, we, Bobby, Bobby. Be, was, like Robbie. a round. We had Robbie yeah. Leslie on the show. Yes, I remember. Right. Yes, I remember because yes. when you were, were in there, like the dance floor was kind of above you, wasn't it? And it was like a round Saint, wasn't it? And so that was good. And Bruce Forrest was, I think, playing when he was there. No, at Saint. Yeah, no, I think so. Robbie Leslie or Sharon right. White or. But, yeah, now I'll tell you what I do remember from that. If you remember the the, the bar in um, Made Me Laugh, the, the bar in in in, in the Merritt Marquis Hotel, it was a revolving bar, right? Didn't it? it went round. Now I didn't know that, and it was quite a long way to the toilet. So I kept going to whenever I went to the toilet, I come back and, and no one was where they were because it it, go, it it moves around so slowly that you don't really realise you do. So I'm thinking, <laughs> why why did they move seats? What you know? What happens every time I go to the toilet? They're moving seats. 
Because, you know, it was, they looked the same. And like, the pe them people are now over there that were there. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to let you take a break for a second and advertise. Yeah, I need a quick wish. Yes, yes. Here we go, everyone. <laughs> 